If you have your if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter twelve this morning. And we are moving into the final section of Paul's letter to the Romans, which has been tagged the greatest letter ever written. And for obvious reasons, it is the greatest letter ever written. And we are looking just at the first two verses here in Romans 12. We're going to look at verse 1 and 2. And before you think, oh, only two verses. Martin Lloyd-Jones had 10 sermons on these two verses, which I encourage you to read, by the way. You will get an unbelievable um, blessing out of that. But Romans 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and uh, you'll find that on page 947 if you're using the church Bible, and I know you'll find it helpful to read along with me. And before we do, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Let's ask him to bless the preaching and the hearing and believing and receiving and keeping and doing of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you humbled. We come before you needy. We come before you weak. We come holding out empty hands. We have no bread, and so we pray that you would give us the bread from heaven. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come down and that you would feed us with your flesh and blood, that you would make known to us the great mysteries of the gospel, that you would help us to learn more of the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge, and that you would motivate us and compel us forward in living lives of Christian service and sacrifice. We pray, our God, that you would do a great and a mighty work among us. You are the infinite God, Lord. This is small for for us to ask that you would transform us and change us and cause us to grow. And so we look to you in humble dependence and reliance. We pray that you would send your spirit to change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says... I appeal to you, and I actually like the old version, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or reasonable, or rational worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you were to spend the afternoon and read through the book of Romans, you would realize that you would read 315 verses and only find three verses of application in the first 315 verses. The first 11 chapters, chapter 1 to 11, are the full and rich exposition. It is the greatest teaching on what Christian doctrine is. There is no way that you can profess to be a Christian, read Romans, and say it doesn't matter what you believe. There is no way for you to profess to be a a Christian, be zealous for just give me three points of application right now so I can go home and read Romans and walk away and come away with that. 315 verses. We started this series back in October, almost a year ago. I think we've gone through 35 sermons And all of that, chapters 1 through 11, has been exposition except for three verses in chapter 6 where Paul gives three points of application in the middle of that great exposition. And it's as if Paul is holding it all in and holding it all in and holding it all in so that he can lay the foundation so that he can make sure that you and I know that Jesus Christ is the foundation and that the way forward in gospel living is to understand the depths of the gospel, to understand the riches of the gospel. And now Paul's about to break forward 
forth in application here in chapter 12, and then it's going to be like a machine gun through the rest of the chapter. And if, if you took everything Paul writes in the rest of the chapter and you just let him machine gun you down, Paul would be shooting up the sheep because you would leave this place feeling discouraged and discontent and beat up because you hadn't properly taken the time to get what Paul has said in the first 11 chapters of this book. And it's so important for us to get that. It's important to understand that if we want to go forward in the Christian life, we go back to see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so you're going to see that everything that Paul does this morning is in light of that. Now, this book has been the most beloved book of all great ministers in Protestant history. As I mentioned already, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, uh, I forget how many commentaries, 12 volumes perhaps, um, 15 volumes on Romans, and he has 10 sermons on these two verses right here. Uh, some of the greatest sermons in church history have been either written on these two verses right here, or these have been integrated into them. They are well-known verses. Perhaps they're some of, some of the verses you memorized earliest when you were a kid. I remember these verses as a child very well. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And yet, for all that, for all that, I think that we fail to see how important these verses are, the steps that Paul takes, and how they're to work out in our lives. There's a story that John Gerstner tells in a sermon on this text called Your Life, a Living Sacrifice. He tells a story about a girl at the time whose name was Julia Lake. Julia grew up in Augusta, Georgia. At 15 years old, she had heard uh, an evangelist preach, and she felt called to go to the mission field. And as the story goes, and as any pastor knows, when a 15-year-old tells you they feel called to go to the mission field, you're like, all right, come back and talk to me in a year. We'll see where you're at then. But Julia Lake had this burning desire to go to missions, and she wanted to go either to China or to Africa. She had a great desire to go to China, and so she made it through high school, and she kept pursuing this, this dream. She kept pursuing this zeal to go on the mission, foreign missions, and she, right before college, met with a mission board who told her, well, you're going to need uh, theological training, and you're going to need a husband. And Julia Lake wanted a husband, and, and so she decided to go to Bible college because it's the only reason you go to Bible college if you're a woman <laughs> is to get a husband. We had two girls in seminary from New Zealand. I was like, this is going to last like a minute. Um, it's like all single guys and two girls from New Zealand. That's not going to last long. And, um, and uh, so she went to Bible college, and she made her way through her first year and her second year and her third year, and then she came to graduation night, and she had not, met a hus- had not found a husband. And she recounts this story that she went home and she wept and she was bitter and she was angry at God and, and she, she realized it hit her how sinful she was, she was acting. And she said, you know, all those years that I had said I wanted to go do missions, it was really a selfish zeal. She said, it was, I really had my hands on my life. And she uses this phrase, she says, and at that moment when I realized that I was being sinful and I was trying to take control of my life and do what I wanted to do with my life, it was at that moment that I realized that I had to take my hands from my life and God enabled me to take my hands from my life. Julia Lake would go on and meet a man who was uh, widowed, um, who was a Presbyterian missionary to the Congo, where her own weeks are. And she would go and have decades of fruitful service, having married this Presbyterian missionary to the Congo. And it was when Julia Lake understood 
that it wasn't her desire to take control of her life, but what God wanted to do with her life. And she took her hands off her life and she rested in who God was and what he had done for her in Christ, that God gave her far greater experiences than she could ever imagine in fruitful Christian service. Now, uh, Gerstner told that story, and I tell that story because really what Paul is calling the church to here in Romans chapter 12 is to fruitful Christian service. He's going to use the phrase, be a living sacrifice, that your life is to be a life of living sacrifice for God and for the sake of the gospel, and that what, interestingly, Paul does here, and I find this to be fascinating, is that before he gives you that whole machine gunning of applications in the rest of the chapter, what Paul does is he sets out some very basic principles. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it stands at the head of this final section, and Paul is setting out these very basic principles. It's actually very helpful. You know, if we get bogged down in the minutia of what God requires for us, and we fail to see the big picture... And we fail to see really, and, and Lloyd-Jones says this so well in one of his sermons, that it's not so much what we do, but why we do it. With our Christian lives, it's, it's not so much what we do, but why we do what we do that matters. I think that's a, a profound point. Paul is actually going to say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's the why we do what we do. It's what we are, what God has made us, and why we are to do what we're to do. Not so much rushing into, okay, what do I do? It's fascinating. He goes 11 chapters of exposition about what Christ has done into these two verses about a general statement about what the totality of our life should be and why we do what we do as Christians. And then he'll go into the specifics. I think that those steps are fundamental to us. Um, Paul is going to do that in two ways. First, he's going to give a pastoral plea to remember God's mercies in Christ. And then secondly, he is going to give us a pastoral plea to live as living sacrifices. A pastoral plea to remember God's mercies and a pastoral plea to be living sacrifices. You know, it's um, one, of my, one of my most helpful verses in pastoral ministry is in 2 Peter 1, where Peter says to a now a mature congregation, a people he's pastored for many years, and Peter's dying, it's his farewell letter, and he says, I stir you up by way of reminder, though you already know these things, it, it's necessary for me to leave this behind you and stir you up by way of reminder. It was the statesman Samuel Johnson said that what we need more than anything is not so much instruction as it is to be reminded. We need to be reminded oftentimes more than we need instruction. And what Paul's doing, notice as he begins this appeal, he, he says to them, I... I I implore you, or I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what's interesting is Paul doesn't say, I command you to do this right now. Paul could do that. Lots of people want to do that. Lots of bosses function like that. Jesus said that the Gentiles lorded over people like that. I've had bosses like that. It's a really crummy job I couldn't wait to get out of. Um, the great apostle Paul could have come. And he could have said, now listen to me right now, you need to do this. But he didn't. He said, I beseech you. Paul has a pastor's heart. He, he wants you to feel his pleading with you. Paul wants you to feel the pleading of a pastoral heart. I beseech you. I implore you. I appeal to you. And then, what's fascinating, he, he could have said, I appeal to you. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, but he reminds them of what they are. He says, I appeal to you, brethren. 
You are sons and daughters of God. You've been adopted into God's family, Romans 8. The Apostle Paul said that we've received the adoption unto sonship, that we're waiting for the full adoption, the redemption of our bodies, that the greatest privilege, and the Puritans used to say this, that adoption was the greatest privilege that Christians have. Listen, people say all the time, God is love, God is love, God is love. They don't believe God's love because they don't believe the gospel. And that's how God displays his love. I think Christians, and that's unbelievers, maybe some who profess to be Christians. I think for Christians, the hardest thing in the world to believe is that you're a son or a daughter of God. I think it's actually the hardest thing in the world for you to rest in that you are God's son, you are God's daughter, if you're in Jesus Christ. Because that's the largest privilege. To be the son of a king, I was thinking about this this week, you know, we get excited when we meet celebrities, we get excited when we, we meet Certain people, I met, I met the guy that raised Ugga this week, the Georgia Bulldog, and somebody on social media said, you need to tell your boys what an unbelievable and rare privilege that was. And uh, so we got a picture, we got a picture with the guy that raised Ugga, and it was a big deal apparently. And I came home and I thought about it. Every time you meet a true believer, you're meeting a son or a daughter of the king of kings, of the king of the universe, of the king of glory, which is vastly bigger and more important than meeting the guy that raised the Georgia Bulldog vastly bigger, but we don't think like that. We don't think about each other that way. We don't think about ourselves that way. So Paul reminds them, he says, pastorally, listen, I'm urging you, I'm beseeching you, I'm imploring you, I'm opening my heart to you, listen to me. And then he says, you are beloved children of God. You have been adopted into his family. Paul never leads with behavior. Paul never moves to behavior. You know, it's one of the things we're going to see in this section The world wants to get right to behavior. Lloyd-Jones had a profound thought about what some have called justification by death. We all sort of believe in justification by death. Someone famous who's not a believer who denies, you know, the essential tenets of Christianity dies and everybody praises them and they, they hail him. Death just obliterates any wrongdoing. And then any nice or good things he's done, they praise him. And and Lloyd-Jones says, then out the door with Christianity, out the door with the New Testament, out the door with what Jesus did. See, Paul never leads with just behavior. He doesn't lead with just characteristic. He doesn't lead with go and you do. When uh, When I was in high school, my mom, very cruel, and signed me up for Latin for three years. In public high school, you got to think about that. Latin in public high school, it's cruel. <laughs> and um, I remember two vocabulary words from those days. And I, but I do remember that Latin was hard because they put the verb at the end. And then when I went to seminary, Greek and Hebrew do the same thing. And so you're translating these verses and and the verbs at the end. And Sinclair Ferguson actually pointed out that English is one of the only languages where we put the verb at the beginning because it's, it's an analogy, isn't it, that we're so intent on what am I doing, the verb, what am I doing, what is my action, what am I doing, and not focusing on what God has been doing. A really helpful analogy. Um, Paul would draw our attention, and he does draw our attention pastorally, to remind us what God has done. Notice this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers or brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, bound up in that word, the mercies of God, 
is everything Paul said in chapters 1 through 11, whether it was about justification, whether it was about sanctification in union with Jesus, whether it was about adoption, whether it was about anything that God has done in Christ, and all of that was about what God has done in Christ. All of it was about what Jesus accomplished at the cross. All of it was about how everything flows from him to us by virtue of our union with him. And Paul finds bound up in this the mercies of God I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he is essentially saying you've got to take chapter 1 to chapter 11, you've got to bind it up, and you've got to remember what was said there. And that's the trick. That's actually the big thing God calls you to do before you do anything, is remember. Some time ago, I was thinking about this. I read an article called The Grace of Remembering. And when you go through the Old Testament, the big problem with Israel is that they forget. And and this is a really helpful exercise if you ever want to do this. Go back and read the Old Testament and note how often God's saying, remember what I did. Remember when I brought you out of Egypt. Remember what I did to Pharaoh. Remember how I fed you the manna in the wilderness. Remember how I did this. Remember how I passed over you in judgment. Remember how I carried you on eagle's wings. Just do a word search for remember. And you'll see that God is constantly telling his people to remember the gospel. This is what people have couched under the head of preaching the gospel to yourself. Paul in Romans 6, turn back there, Romans 6. Actually, the first command that Paul gives in this book is actually to preach the gospel to yourself. It's the first thing Paul says. Notice verse 11. Notice this. Paul has just told... Uh, the church in Rome and the believers there that we've died with Christ, that the power of sin's been broken, that we've died with him, we've been risen with him. So tell me, Paul, what, what do you want me to do? What do I do now? And notice this, verse 11, so you must reckon or consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the first command in the book of Romans. Preach to yourself what happened to you when Jesus died and rose, you died, and you rose with him. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are to remember, you are to preach the gospel to yourself. And so when we come to chapter 12, notice that Paul doesn't take one step forward without pointing us back again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual service. Um, This takes work. Contrary to what some people think, it's not natural. Just be thinking back all the time about what God has done for us in Christ. It takes intentionality. It takes discipline. It takes searching the scriptures. It takes meditating on the scriptures. It takes knowing the scriptures. It It takes putting ourselves quietly and humbly under God's teaching us again and again and again. I love Colossians 1. Paul speaks of the hope of the gospel which has come to you as it has to the whole world and is bringing forth fruit as it has since the day that you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. The gospel, what God has done in Christ, has come to you and it is bringing forth fruit since the day that you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Peter in 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, he'll give a long list of 
of Christian commands. He'll say, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. He says, if you do these things, you'll, you'll have an abundance entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He who forgets these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So if we're not growing spiritually, Peter tells us it's because we've forgotten what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the trick. Everybody wants a, give me a secret to sanctification. That's the secret. That's the trick. We like to cheat. And so Paul tells us in Colossians, don't say, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. That's how we like to cheat. We like to set up rules about what we eat, what we watch, what we do. We set up all these rules. And Paul says that has an appearance of humility and self-imposed religion, but it's, against, it's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So setting up a standard of strictness doesn't change the heart. Jesus dying on the cross does. So the power of sin is not broken by setting up rules and regulations. The power of sin is broken by Jesus dying under the wrath of God, putting himself under the power of sin, dying to sin's power, and us in union with him, dying with him and rising with him. And so really what Paul is saying all goes back to the resurrection. It all goes back. And at the beginning of this book, which is very fascinating, Paul opens with a statement about the importance of the resurrection. He says that Jesus Christ was of the seed of David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. So in the flesh, he was the Son of David. In the resurrection, he was shown to be the glorious Son of God with power. And everything that Paul says in this book rests on the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, in chapter 8, at, at the climax of his section on sanctification and holiness, he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies which dwell in you. And then in chapter 11, which we just finished, and he's talking about how God's going to incorporate elect Jews and elect Gentiles in the process by which he gathers his people together. Paul says, what will be their inclusion again, but life from the dead? Paul is consumed with the idea of the resurrection of Jesus and how it impacts our lives. And so what enabled, what enabled Julia Lake to take her hands off her life was the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't willpower. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If I could say anything to you, if this was my last sermon, and I could say anything to you, I would say the Christian life is never pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is always look to Jesus Christ, see what God has done for you in Christ, what Christ has accomplished, and what you have by virtue of his death and resurrection. And that should be preached again and again and again and again, and you should leave this place and you should preach that to yourself again and again and again. And that's where Paul's pastoral plea begins. Now the question is, if, if you've believed, if you've received the mercy of God, you know, that's Paul's whole intention in the first 11 chapters is that the Christian life is lived by faith in the Son of God. That 
The righteousness that comes to us from God is by faith alone. And, and actually, the only other time Paul gives an imperative or anything that seems like an imperative outside of chapter 6 is when he talks about the obedience of faith. Now, he's not saying faith is obedience. He's not saying faith is get doing. Um, there was a church some years ago in the general area, and I went on their website. Uh, associate of mine had pastored it, and, and I went on their website, and their slogan was, listen, go, do. And I thought, why don't we insert a big, fat, 25-font believe right after listen? Listen, believe, go, do. And, and he left the main thing out. The main thing is, Believe on the Son of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust him. It is obedient to trust him, but trusting him is not you doing. I want to read this quote to you because this is so helpful to me. Ferguson says, let me repeat one more time that if there is any epistle in the New Testament that teaches us the grammar of the Christian gospel, it is Paul's letter to the Romans. Learning to articulate the grammar of the gospel is fundamental to speaking well in your life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen that the grammar of the gospel, that the imperatives of the gospel, that's the commands, are always rooted in the indicatives, that's the facts, of God's saving grace. The imperatives are always rooted in the indicatives. The commands are always rooted in the facts. And we have had 11 chapters of unremitting indicatives stating what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and rarely telling us anything that we should do. I think that there are probably three points in the first 11 chapters where the Apostle Paul has stopped talking about what God has done and turned to us and says, now here's what you are to do. Now, if you think I'm making too big a deal of this, I encourage you to read Lloyd-Jones' first three sermons, and you'll see why this is such a big deal. Um, and so the question before we move on into the applications is, have, have you gotten that? Has that sunk down? Are you learning the grammar of the gospel? Are you learning the grammar of the gospel, that it's not what you do, it's what God in Christ has done? I tend to think that large numbers of people could hear that their whole life and then go sit under a ministry that tells them exactly what they should do all the time and not realize the disconnect. And so don't miss that. Paul begins by calling them to remember God's mercy in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, Paul pleads with them as a pastor to be living sacrifices. Now, it's interesting this this phrase, living sacrifice, you might have memorized this verse so much you don't even think about it, but the word actually means to kill. So a sacrifice is slaughtered. So a living killing, which doesn't make any sense. So you are to be a living killing. You are to be killed all the time spiritually, but you are to do that by living to God. And what Paul is foundationally telling us, and this is, this is very important for us to get, is that it's not so much what you do as what you are to be because of what Christ has done for you. Isn't this what Jesus said? Everywhere. When Jesus talks about holiness and godly living, he says, take up your cross. He says, take up your cross. He doesn't say, go and do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. He says, I'm going to the cross. You take up the cross. Take up the cross and follow me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so all of the Christian life 
is you being a living sacrifice to God. I love the hymns of the church because in so many of them, they capture that, that connection between what God has done in Christ and then what ought to be the outflow of that. Hymns are they're little mini sermons for the soul. And they're often structured in very helpful ways. And um, one of the men that structured his hymns, I think, the best was Isaac Watts. And in two of Watts's hymns, he gives us um, a glimpse of this thought right here. In, in Alas, and did my Savior bleed, which opens, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Did he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it? Did he devote? his sacred head, for such a worm as I. And then he ends the hymn. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. That's the response. The response to God giving his sacred head to the crown of thorns is, Here, Lord, I give myself away. And another one of Watts' hymns, he has a similar sentiment in When I Survey the Wondrous Cross which you know well, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And he ends that hymn, the last verses, were the whole realm of nature mine that were present for me to give to God, far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, saying, saying that God in Christ does everything and that Christianity is not first and foremost what you do, does not make Christianity cheap or easy. It doesn't make it cheap or easy. To be a real Christian is to cry out in response to what God has done and to say, I will give my life away. Take my life and let it be. It's one of the greatest hymns ever written. My silver, my gold, my time, my money. If you ever look at the, the objects, all the things that give away, my time, my money, my hands, my feet, my, I will labor, the whole of you. And that means, that means that God doesn't just say, well, you know, I've done all this for you, and so maybe your gift will be giving a lot of money, but you go spend your time however you want to spend it. Lots of people think like that. If you look at their lives, their lives look that way. They give money to the church, and then they go do what they want to do. Other people don't give anything to the church. They don't give any money. But they'll sacrifice some time. They'll come and they'll give time. And, and we're very good at compartmentalizing our lives. We're very good at saying, well, this part of my life, I can afford to kind of let that part be sacrificed. We don't even use the word sacrifice anymore in, in our society. I remember as a kid, my dad would often tell me, and my sister, because he had sent us to Christian school, that... that I forget what I was. She was his Jaguar. I was probably like the Hyundai. I'm sorry if you have a Hyundai. But um, that, that what he could have had with the money he spent, he gladly sacrificed to benefit us. Um, today, we don't even use the phrase sacrifice. And yet God calls us to be sacrifices. You know, Christians don't bring a sacrifice. Christians are the sacrifice. That's an interesting thought in the New Testament. Whenever it talks about the response of Christians, it's often offering the sacrifices of thanksgiving, offering the sacrifices of praise, offering our lives as a sacrifice. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, uh, made the statement, if, if you, my Lord, could lay down your life for me, can I not lay down my life for thee? That's the idea. That's Christianity. 
And you know what? In a day like our day, this is crazy. This is crazy. This may be to you. You may be thinking, when is this going to be over? That just shows that you're not living as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice says, I want to give my life for Christ because he's done everything for me. I want to give up my time. I want to give up my energy. I want to give more for him. Not to gain, not to merit, not to get, but because he's done everything for me. That's the whole, and it's, it's so countercultural today, especially in our culture. We live in the most narcissistic culture, arguably, since Rome in the first century. And it's all about you and your retirement and your life and what you do and your experiences and your happiness. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people get divorced and people say, well, as long as you're happy, you know, you're living in open, unrepentant adultery. But as long as you're happy and, and God comes and he says, Listen, in light of all that I've done for you in Christ, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The other thing that he tells us as he starts to unpack this is that it affects the whole of our person. Notice that he says your bodies. He doesn't say your spirits. He doesn't say your soul. Christianity doesn't just envelop into the uh, ethereal world of of meditation and mysticism. It's the whole person that Jesus redeems. And that means, and Paul's going to actually unpack this. It's very interesting that we may think when Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, our minds usually run to sexual immorality. And okay, don't be sexually immoral. I get that. That's sinning against my body. But Paul's actually going to talk about how we're using the whole of our person to minister to the saints. That's a huge part of this. A huge part of being a living sacrifice is pouring out your life in service to the people of God and to those in the world around us. And so your bodies, what you do with your hands, what you do, what you do with all of you, this is, not, this is not something to be placarded on a gym. I mean, nothing irks your pastor more than I walk into a gym and see a Bible verse that's about serving the covenant community used for working out. Work out. You need to work out. Working out's great. Little benefit, lots of work, it's great. (laughs) But this verse is not telling you how to eat and how to work out. It's telling you to use the whole of your person and to view that that's what you are. You have been purchased to be a sacrifice unto God. God has sacrificed himself. He's the first sacrifice so that then we would be sacrifices. And let me say this. When we get this, it changes everything. Because we stop thinking about me, 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 me. I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. I want to do this. I want to do that. What are you going to do? I'm going to do this. And we start thinking, how can my life display that I am a sacrifice to people? You know, Paul got this better than anybody. Paul actually said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy that I'm being poured out. I'm being poured out as a sacrifice. Paul saw himself as as a drink offering to God, that he was being poured out, that every part of him, and you know, that's, that's the point, isn't it? That the sacrifice, the sacrifice is, to be, is to be expended unto death. I'm going to say for us verse 2, I want us to challenge ourselves to ask, When I think about what God requires of me, is my first thought, what am I to do? Or is my first thought, what has he done for me? There's your application. The first thought that ought to come in your mind when you think about your relationship with God is what he has done for you. 
in Jesus Christ. It should be on the tip of your tongues. It should be the joy and rejoicing of your hearts. It should be what fuels our conversations. You know, when we have tensions in the home or in church or in relationships, 100 out of 100 times, it is because we are not thinking of the mercies of God in Christ to me. 100 out of 100 times, if you have tensions and turmoil and bitterness and complaining and jealousy and backbiting and self-righteousness and judgmentalism and pointing out faults in everybody else, 100 out of 100 times, it's because we have forgotten what God has done for us. And if we are active in serving others because we've remembered what God has done and we're a blessing to others and our lives are seen as, you know, I was thinking about the weeks. What, what enables Ron and Doris Weeks to pour their lives out in the Congo? I mean, we have no idea. The comforts and the luxuries and all the accoutrements, I like that word, accoutrements of life. And the difficulty and the strife and the danger that they face. And there's one thing that drives Ron and Doris on, and it's what finally drove Julia Lake to go to the Congo, and it's what's going to drive you forward as a vibrant Christian, and that is remembering the mercies of God in Christ and realizing that God has made you to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I'm not going to read the hymn to you, but I'm going to go over all the all the spheres that this ought to touch from the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. First, first verse, take my life, take my moments, take my hands, take my feet, take my voice, take my lips, take my silver and my gold, take my intellect, take my will, take my heart, take my love, take myself. You know, this will be so countercultural to the world around us when this happens. Um, Tim Keller makes the point that we like to give away what God's given us to hold on to, sex, and we like to keep what God's given us to give away, money. That's how the world operates. They give away to everybody what God tells them to keep for their spouse, and they hoard what God gives them to give away to people. And so when we get this, and we can sing with a true heart because of the mercies of God in Christ. Take my life, my moments, my hands, my feet, my voice, my lips, my silver, my gold, my intellect, my will, my heart, my love, myself. What is that going to look like to the world? What is that going to look like to the church? This is rare in the church. What is it going to look like to the world? What is it going to look like to Richmond Hill and Hinesville? What is it going to look like in Savannah? What is it going to look like when people see us laying ourselves down in service to others out of love to God and gratitude for what he's done for us in Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that this would be true of us, that you would cause the precious truths of your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus to sink into our minds and our hearts, to sink down into our ears and to transform us. Father, we pray that we would be changed, that with the Apostle Paul we could say the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Our God, we need help. We need you to create in us a zeal and a desire 
to take our hands off of our lives and to be the living sacrifices that you have redeemed us to be for your glory and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.